0: Welcome. Welcome back. As we continue our series, Ancient Future, Yesterday's Truth for Tomorrow's Travels, as we make our way through the Apostles' Creed, Uh, we're in the third article of the Creed, which says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And today, we're looking at that phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now... Our service opened in the call to worship uh, with someone reading from Luke's gospel, uh, this, this passage. I just wanted to refer back to it. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure that you give will be the measure that you get back. Now, growing up in church, this was a popular passage, and I actually heard it a lot. There was one time in my life where I think I heard this passage of Scripture every single Sunday. Like every Sunday, this passage of Scripture was either read or cited, uh, referred to in one way or another. And generally, like 99.99% of the time, it was done in the context of taking up an offering right? And so we want you to kind of give your money uh, to the Lord, we'll say, also known as giving it to the church. (laughs) And the expectation is that the Lord will return your money to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. It's as though that God was running the best ROI that you could find. Uh, That's a return on your investment for you pedestrians, right? I'm actually a pedestrian when it comes to money myself, but I've I've heard my business uh, faculty colleagues use terms like that, right? So, but there's a challenge with this, and um, it's it's multi-leveled. So one, it kind of treats God like God is somehow obligated to do something, and you kind of got God kind of caught behind the eight ball. Like God's going to have to respond to what you do. Um, God can't be manipulated. And for that matter, God doesn't manipulate. That's not how God kind of uses God's power. Um, God's not something that can be kind of trained. Now, sometimes I'm, I'm afraid that we've treated God that way, as though God's not truly sovereign, as though God's not truly free. Like we're like, come, God, come. You know, heal, God, heal. Sit, God, sit. <laughs> Speak, God, speak. God's not a dog, you know. He's not your pet. He's the Almighty. That's how the creed starts. I believe in God the Father Almighty. God is God. We are not God. And so we need to be careful how we speak about those things. The second is this. The second problem I have with the way I've heard that Scripture used, uh, particularly in my childhood, is that suffering, whether it's physically, emotionally, financially, is part of the self-sacrificial way that Jesus lived, and and that he calls us to live, right? He says, if you want to be my disciples, you'll deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And that doesn't seem like getting rich. Um, the The literary context also does not suggest that money is implied in this kind of economy of exchange. Rather, it's judgment and forgiveness. It's like when you judge, you'll be judged, when you forgive, you'll be forgiven. The amount that you judge, you'll get judged. The amount that you forgive, you'll get forgiven. So, so that there is this kind of economy of exchange. But a couple of things. It's not like you get more than what you put in. Like if, um, if you judge, you're going to get judged doubly hard. Or if you forgive a little, you get forgiven a lot. It's kind of an equal thing, is, is the way it's laid out in that passage, at least in Luke, right? But, it's, but the, the topic is not easily shifted from one category of life to another category of life, I think. I think that the, the passage of Scripture, if we're going to kind of treat it seriously and respectfully, is talking about judgment and it's talking about forgiveness. And those are the things that when we give them, we, give, we get them back right? That that's, that's what that passage seems to be saying. The measure that you give, it says at the end, will be the measure you receive. Those are the last words, not that you'll receive more than you give. Now, during our Lenten series this year, which was Words to Lent By, I preached a sermon on forgiveness on Palm Sunday. Uh, you may or may not want to kind of go back and listen to that podcast, but on that day, I used a clip… Um, with a film uh, that had Nicole uh, Kidman and and Sean Penn. That was actually the second time I'd used that clip. I'd used it a couple of years ago as well. Um, You know, they say if it's good, it's worth using once or twice or three times. So I want to show it again today. Um, I mean, we know it's summertime, and in summertime, you often get reruns, right? Your favorite shows are no longer playing their normal things. So consider this a summertime sermon that you're going to get to see a rerun of what you saw back in when the, the series was still new back in March. Um, we're using it particularly because I think it expresses beautifully the, what's revealed in Scripture, and that's this, that we can benefit from forgiving as much as we can benefit from receiving uh, forgiveness. Uh, let's, let's take a look. I think that's great. Vengeance is a lazy form of grief. Uh, Let me be clear on a few things. Forgiveness doesn't mean placing yourself in dangerous situations, uh, such as staying in an abusive relationship. Uh, You can forgive uh, your abuser, but then also uh, leave them, you know, avoid them. Uh, And referring back to the passage in Luke, I want to say this, too, about kind of giving, giving financially, because it is, it is part of how we live our lives. We practice, it, um, we practice it as a family. I mean, I practice it personally. There are other passages of Scripture that do speak about blessings for the cheerful giver, in which case the economy of exchange does seem to apply to money. Um, it's just that I don't think that passage in Luke was talking about that. Um, specifically, money given to the poor. So it's not just kind of money given in general. In general, uh, There's this passage. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he or she has decided in his or her heart and reluctantly, not reluctantly, excuse me, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, um, sometimes uh, when I'm trying to press the point on one passage of Scripture, I'm not trying to say that how we've interpreted it in the past is, is um, kind of completely out of touch with reality or, or with truth somewhere. I'm trying to say that there are passages of Scripture that relate to certain things, and there's others that we try to relate but don't really, and we kind of miss the point. And the point of the passage in Luke is that when you start to deal out judgment to people, just beware that you're going to be judged harshly. And when you start to deal out forgiveness to people, also, I don't know, beware, or maybe what's the positive version of beware? Uh, get ready, <laughs> because forgiveness uh, will be coming your way. So all that, be that as it may, um, Let's, let's not take the meaning from the Second Corinthians passage, which talks about sowing and the cheerful giver, and kind of force it into the, to the Luke passage. There are other passages that speak about the necessity of forgiveness. Uh, in the Lord's Prayer, we find the principle of divine forgiveness being conditioned on our own forgiveness of others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors so that the, that the forgiveness that comes is not just kind of free and blanket. I mean, I know I've always thought that, but it says, forgive as we forgive our debtors. Or to quote Luke's version, it says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. Now, that's, that's really pressing the point. Like, my sins get forgiven when I forgive someone else's debt to me whatever kind of that might mean, I guess. But generally, debt to me would mean finances. So I love this. I love it because it prevents us from spiritualizing the gospel in ways that deny the earthly and the real-life aspects of the gospel. Christianity, as I said uh, a few weeks ago, is not something that we just sit around and think about. The Christian faith has to do with our lives. It's something we practice That's why people were taught the Apostles' Creed, because they want to say, this is what we say, so we get baptized, and we get baptized because we're going to live differently, right? We're going to live as disciples uh, of Jesus Christ. So I was speaking uh, with the staff about forgiveness this week, earlier in the week, before I made my trip, and I was questioned on this idea of conditional, the nature of forgiveness. They said, uh, aren't we just forgiven simply when we ask? I mean, regardless of whether or not we forgive, uh, that's what I was taught, they said. Salvation is just between me and God. It doesn't really have anything to do with anybody else. And and, and certainly, there's this sense in which, particularly in Protestantism, we've wanted to kind of bypass the role of the minister, right? So a, a priesthood of all believers, we say. Uh, It's a play off words that come from one of Peter's epistles where he says we are a nation of priests. So I've I've said this before too. This is like rerun episode two. But I'm going to say it again because I want you to hear this. To believe that your role as a priest in the priesthood of all believers means that you can just go to God and you don't need somebody else is a Protestant heresy. It is wrong thought, and doctrine. The role of the priest, not just in Judaism, but in all kind of ancient Near Eastern religions, the role of the priest was to go to God on behalf of someone else. If you were going to be the priest, you were held responsible for the spiritual well-being of the people that you were shepherding. And so the idea that somehow we become a nation of priests or a group of priests doesn't mean that we don't need priests. It means that all of us get to function as priests meaning that any of us can go and pray for the sick. Any of us can hear someone confess their sins and say, look, the Lord forgives you. Go and sin no more, right? It means that we all get to play that role. It doesn't mean that we don't need the role played. That was good. I'm preaching better than you're shouting. I got this handheld mic, you know, so I'm feeling more, you know, old school. Be careful. Be careful. So let's look at a couple other passages real quick. This is one of my favorite. It comes out of Mark chapter 11. Um, It's kind of after the cursing of the temple and that whole destruction scene. And Jesus says this. This is the concluding statement of a conversation that he's had with Peter. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. It seems like there's some expectation on our part. Uh, uh, The end of John has something very similar. Um, I believe this is John 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. I, I, I'm pretty sure that we never preached that one as a kid. I mean, the forgiving the sins, yes. But that retaining of sins, that, that's so far out of our uh, theological and spiritual imagination that I'm not even sure we know what to do with that one. That's, that's an interesting one. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Being a disciple of Jesus requires obedience. That's also from John. That's John 14. So um, before we get into kind of where does forgiveness come from, uh, just really quickly, I want to sketch this kind of overarching Uh, movement that we find in Scripture as it relates to kind of forgiveness and violence and kind of our role with it. In the ancient Near Eastern world, um, they had kind of extreme violence, like unlimited violence. And violence was used as a deterrent. So if Ed kind of killed one of my sheep, then I go and I can kill seven of Ed's sheep. Well, then there are, there are eight dead sheep, you know, and we're living in the ancient world and we need sheep to kind of help live and stay alive, so that's not a good thing. But then, but if, if somebody says, well, that was kind of too rough, you know, uh, Pat's like, I don't know, come on, Robbie, you shouldn't have killed seven. So they come, they kill 14 of my sheep, right? And, and, and then Alan, Alan comes to my rescue and he says, well, wait a minute, 14 sheep's too much, right? And we come back and we kill 28 of Pat's sheep. We take out his whole flock. Right? So the, the violence, unlimited violence would just escalate. There's one guy in particular, he's mentioned in Genesis 4, he's, he's kind of bragging about himself. He goes, you know, I don't just respond seven times, I respond 70. Like his name was Lamech. Like he's really bad to the bone. I'm going to hit them 70 times. Man, that would completely wipe out not just one family, but maybe one whole tribe. So you move from that kind of unlimited violence to this idea of limited violence. So when Moses says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that's a real step forward in justice. The whole justice system kind of leaped forward like like millennia practically because that eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is not a maximum requirement, right? You have to do this excuse me, it's not a minimal requirement—I'll get it right in a second—that you have to do this. It's a maximum requirement, meaning if somebody kind of takes your tooth, the worst you can do to them is to take a tooth. Like, you don't have to take their tooth, but that's the worst you can do. It, like, it put a limit on the violence. So we go from unlimited violence to limited violence, and then that's in, you know, Exodus. We get to Leviticus, and Moses is like, man, this is working so good and how we treat these other people, why don't we ratchet it up a couple of notches more, and he says to them, love your neighbor as yourself. You'll find that in Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we go from unlimited violence to limited violence to what I think could accurately be described as limited love, right? Because he's not saying love everybody, I don't think. He's saying love your neighbor, So I'm not sure he's saying love the Egyptian or love the Canaanite or the Philistine. I think he means love your fellow Jew who kind of lives in your neighborhood. But then this other guy comes on the scene. You've heard of him. He's from the Middle East. He was probably a little short, kind of dark-skinned. Didn't write anything, but his name was Jesus. And he said this. He said, pray for those who persecute you and you have heard it said, love your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemy. So here's the overall arc of that, right? We move from unlimited violence to limited violence to limited love to unlimited love. Like that's, that's to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to actually pray for those who persecute you, to love your enemies. And I actually have a t-shirt that says, I think when Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably meant don't kill them. I should have wore that today. But I haven't been home yet, right? I came straight from the airport. Yeah. So, so that's, that's the movement, right? So forgiveness is not something that came on the scene with Jesus. God had been forgiving long before that. Um, where does forgiveness come from? Frankly, it comes from God. It's God's free choice. God can choose to forgive, and God often does. He is a forgiver. Uh, Hosea 14 paints this beautiful picture as God is a forgiver who forgives to give, who chooses to forgive. Forgiveness, though, for the Jews and, for that matter, lots of kind of ancient Near Eastern religions, used to come via the sacrificial system. But then something big happened. Something really big happened. Jesus was born. And he lived, and he taught, and he healed, and he delivered, and he fed, and he wept, and he prayed, and he was crucified, and he was dead, and he was buried, and he ascended into hell. And the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he is at the right hand of God the Father, from whence he shall come to judge, right? The uniqueness of Jesus and the superiority of Jesus is the topic of the sermon that we call the book of Hebrews, in that, you see that Jesus is superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Aaron. He's superior to any high priest. He's superior to the very sacrificial system itself. Um, here's, a, here's a little lesson from Hebrews 6. So as we have kind of making our way through the creed, sometimes we kind of veer off a little bit to say, well, this is how this tradition believes and practices, and this is how this tradition believes and practices, but we're trying to find the, the common center. So Hebrews 6 is a really interesting one because it says there, if you've tasted the heavenly gift, right, if, you, if you've come to faith, if you've believed in Jesus and you, and you turn and walk away, then there is no forgiveness for you. There is no coming back. Now, that's an interesting one, right? So I was educated at a Presbyterian uh, college, and so, you know, we learned about all those various synods, particularly... Uh, the Senator Dort and Worms and such, and that whole total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and that last one, that P, perseverance of the saints, that the saints will persevere. Like, there is no going back. Apostasy is not only not probable, it's impossible. You can't give back your salvation because God has bought it for you, right? So that was my kind of Presbyterian training. And then I had a lot of friends because I grew up in the South, right? And so it seems like uh, half, the, half the school was Baptist. Uh, interestingly enough, when I was just in Virginia Beach, every other radio station was a Christian radio station. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know if I'd like to love it or hate it. Um, but I was, I was surprised by kind of how permeating that little the market there that was, right? So my Baptist friends... They didn't, they didn't believe in predestination like my Presbyterian friends did, right? But they did believe in eternal security, that, that once saved, always saved, right? That that's, that's the way this worked. But then what do you do with this Hebrews 6 passage that says once you've tasted the heavenly gift, if you turn and walk away, there is no salvation for you. There is no coming back. Like, that's pretty rough. So we didn't use the word apostasy growing up. We used the word backsliding. And we heard, we heard a lot about backsliding. Like, I heard so much about backsliding. Like, I knew the Presbyterians and the Baptists didn't believe in backsliding, but we believed in backsliding. We didn't just believe in backsliding, we practiced backsliding. <laughs> right? <laughs> I was backsliding all the time. I can't tell you how many times I got saved. At least every summer at youth camp, and probably four or five times throughout the year, right? Some Christians are born again. I was born again again. And born again, 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 right? <laughs> so, so who's right? Right? Is it the evangelicals and Pentecostals? Are they right that backsliding is a possibility or even a probability? Um, or is it the Baptists and Presbyterians? Like, are they right? So once again, um, there's lots of different beliefs and practices in groups that you know we would even say, yeah, they're Christians, right? But I might not agree with this or that. The Hebrew 6 passage, I don't think, has anything to do with that. Like, that's the one they use to argue either side of it, particularly those who want to believe the possibility or even the probability uh, of backsliding. They love that Hebrew 6 passage because it sounds like people are turning and walking away, and they're like, aha, I got you, my Baptist brother. What you going to do with Hebrew 6? But what is Hebrew 6 talking about? Uh, Just a little quiz here. Um, who do you think the book of Hebrews is written to? Hebrews. Very good. Right. The Hebrews. Right. And so did the Hebrews believe that forgiveness was available? Yes. Yeah. And how did you do it? You took your sacrifice to the priest. That's how you did it. It's the way it had been set out. Right. It had been practiced before Moses, but it kind of got, got codified. Right. It got solidified with Moses. So here's what I think is happening there. Because it's in this whole section about the superiority of Jesus. And this particular section is talking about that Jesus is superior to the sacrificial system. And then the writer of Hebrews says to the Hebrews, if you've tasted the heavenly gift, right, if you've believed in Jesus, if you followed him and you turn away, meaning to turn back to your sacrificial system, there is no salvation there right? You can't practice that anymore. That's what he's talking about. That's where you can't just go there and think you're good. You can't just keep killing animals thinking you'll be okay. Like, that's the argument there. So if you thought you could use Hebrews 6 on either one side or the other of a contemporary kind of Christian debate, I apologize for removing that from your repertoire not really. I don't apologize for that. I want you to remove that from your repertoire because I don't think that's what Hebrews 6 is talking about. I think Hebrews is saying, look, we are Jesus-centered. Like, we, we are kind of exclusively Jesus. Like, there, there is no other way. This, this is it. And if you try and do another way, I don't care how holy you think it is. I don't care where you think it might have come from. If it ain't Jesus, it ain't salvation. That's, that's, the, that's the Hebrews kind of uh, argument. But back to my main point. In, in Hebrews uh, 10, uh, the argument kind of reaches its climax, and it actually says there, no sacrifice remains. But if no sacrifice remains, and God is a forgiver, then how does God's forgiveness that God freely gives get appropriated to any person? How do I get to participate in that free gift of forgiveness that God gives? So at the end of chapter 10, it said, no sacrifice remains. Well, if no sacrifice remains, it begs the question, what am I to do? And Hebrews 11.1 1 answers it, I believe. You know Hebrews 11.1? 1, it's one of those you had to memorize in vacation Bible school. Faith. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the substance of things not seen. That's how we appropriate the free gift of, of forgiveness that comes from God, is by our faith. And according to Hebrews, it's how it's always been, really, because they've got this long list of people, some that predate Moses, some after Moses, but it's this long list of folks who Hebrews tells us these folks were faithful, right? They were righteous because of their faith. Which then, that then leads into what uh, Phil preached about last week, Hebrews 12, 1, and that great cloud of witnesses. So who are the cloud of witnesses? They are those who have been faithful. They are those who have been made righteous by their faith in God. And that's how the forgiveness of God has now been appropriated to their lives. Paul, Paul gets into this as well. It's a beautiful description of forgiveness and reconciliation that he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer that way. So if anyone is in Christ, uh, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new all this is from God. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself and counting their trespasses against them and entrusting, or excuse me, not counting their trespasses against them. Boy, that's a big difference. Right. I really got that wrong for a second. Like, here's the whole point. Sometimes we we fret about sin when God's kind of gone through a lot to forgive sin. Like, sin is not arbitrary. It's not like God's like, well, I don't like that. You know, I like fish. I don't like pork. So just eat fish, not pork. No, sin is those things that kind of drive us away from God and drive us away from each other. So God doesn't want us to do it for kind of our own sakes. Yeah? And so God's gone through all this to reconcile the world through Christ to him. And then it says this, not (laughs) counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us, We entreat you, Paul says to the Corinthians, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is a beautiful passage of Scripture. Like, that's what drives us we, we want to be reconciled with God because God is a reconciler, right? He's, he's kind of done all this work. It's God who has done this. It's not us. It's not like you've done some great thing to kind of be forgiven, right? God's done it. And now he wants us to carry forward the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, Jesus' brother, James, uh, wrote a book in the Bible, and he gets into this topic as well. James says this, you do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails on one point has become accountable for it all. Man, that's tough. For the one who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you are a murderer, you have become a transgressor of the law. Man, this sounds hopeless. So speak, James says, and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment uh, will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Look, I'm a dad. Uh, sometimes my kids do things that are wrong. Sometimes I, I can show them mercy. It doesn't mean I'm not being a just father. It's me, it means that my, the goal of my mercy is the same as the goal of my judgment. It's to restore them, not simply to punish them, right? Because it's rooted in love. That is exactly how I think God is with us, except better, right? That that's how it works. We're judged by the law of liberty, for judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. So that doesn't mean that some people won't be judged without mercy. In fact, I think it means that they will be judged without mercy. But they're judged without mercy because they would not show mercy. But that's not God's way, because God's way is for mercy to triumph over judgment. Later in the same book, James says this, Are any among you suffering? I don't think that's a rhetorical question for him, right? Are any among you suffering? Yeah, but just two of you. You should pray. Are any cheerful? Okay, yeah, all right, thank you. All right. Same amount of suffering and the same amount of cheerful. That's interesting. And I'm not even sure. I think it might have been the same person who's both suffering and cheerful. They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord, and their prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. So look, I don't know when's the last time you confessed a sin to somebody else, right? I know that, again, in our expression of Christianity, we don't have like a confessional booth, right? You don't come in and say, hey, Robbie, forgive me for I've sinned. And I'm like, go say three Hail Marys, right? That's not our practice. But in, in the kind of Pentecostal, charismatic, evangelical world, there was a phenomenon, and it may be still kind of popular, but it was really popular kind of back in the 80s, maybe the 90s, we called them accountability partners. Somebody remember that term? That was a popular term back in the day. The accountability partner was just a Protestant version of the Catholic or the Orthodox confessional booth. It was a way of of saying to someone else, hey, I'm struggling. Hey, I've sinned. So I think we should be confessing our sins more. And I know that's not very popular, and, and, and I also realize that it could be kind of dangerous, right? You confess your sins to somebody, and next thing you know, on Facebook, everybody's going to know what your sins are, <laughs> right? Social media is, is both a, a, a good thing and a bad thing, or at least a dangerous thing. So I think we do need to be confessing our sins, I think we do need to be wise about it, right? I'm not encourage you I'm not encourage you to kind of you know post on your Facebook your sins or to wear a sign around your neck, your sins. But I am saying that you need community. And I am saying that you do need to confess your sins and not just to God, you need to be confessing your sins to one another. Because there's something powerful in it. because when the sin is is in secret, it, it has, it has this potency over you, but when you can kind of speak the truth that yes, I've sinned, and someone else kind of then hears it and knows it, there's something that happens in that, that kind of sets us free, that, that we get bound by our habits, and it's difficult for us to kind of break particularly bad habits habits that are driving us from God or driving us from one another or sometimes even driving us from our very selves. So, we have set the front of the church up in kind of a traditional altar. There's there's pillows on the ground. There's kind of short altar stations and you can either come and kneel or you can sit. But I'm going to invite you to come to the altar For those of you who don't know that term, the the altar in a sacrificial system is where the animal would be killed. We're not going to, no one's getting killed here today, right? But you're coming to that altar to kind of uh, physically come, but then kind of spiritually sacrifice. And I'm inviting you to come and to pray and to ask for forgiveness, And to ask that God would help you forgive those who have harmed you. Because holding on to unforgiveness is like trying to hold on to cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. And we're going to have some elders and they're going to kind of be in the far wings and they're going to have some anointing oil to pray for you if you're sick. So if you want to confess your sins to someone or if you want to have prayer or if you want to um, pray with somebody, you have that opportunity. And again, that's kind of to the far left or right. But if you just want to come and pray and confess to God, then come do that. And, and perhaps the, the case has been that maybe you've never identified with Jesus Christ, right? Today could be that day, right? Today could be that day. We talk about initiation, like when you're kind of starting on the journey. We talk about conversion, like, like turning from one path to another. Turn to this path. Turn to Jesus. Find the life that is available when we... Give and when we love, right? When we measure our judgment, but we don't measure our mercy. Because that's the God we serve. And that's the best way to flourish, I believe, as a human being. So there'll be places to come and kneel and pray. There are folks who want to pray with you. And it also said, for those, what does it say? Are any of you cheerful? hopefully somebody more than just, more than just Josh. They need to sing a song of praise. So we're going to do that too. So there's going to be some singing and there's going to be some praying because we're actually going to try and practice this belief that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. You should come now.